Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke. Today, we're joined by Dr. Melanie Bagg, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Youth Science Forum here in Australia. Dr. Bagg is a PhD qualified medical research scientist and award-winning professional science communicator. Currently, she is the CEO of the National Youth Science Forum where she's focused on delivering transformative youth-led experiences for young Australians to encourage lifelong participation in science, technology, engineering, and maths. She is a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and having experience in higher education, media, and the not-for-profit sectors. Melanie has 15 years of experience and expertise in STEM management, fundraising, science communication, outreach, publishing, media for the not-for-profit sector, and higher education. And she joins me in the studio. Dr. Bag, welcome to GovComs. Thank you for having me. You also did some um, really interesting work, I think, with the Academy of Science here in mm-hmm. Canberra. And we will come to that. Mm. But we were just chatting, and we, we come to you. Uh, this will be, and I'm sure in the next week or so, um, will still be a topic but the coronavirus, and we were just having a conversation there about communication around these types of issues. As a science communicator, certainly, you know, we shook hands when we came in, and then the most recent thing is don't shake hands with people. So what are your views on on how it's sort of jumped the fence and it's out and moving and everyone's having an opinion? There's all sorts of theories going. As a science communicator, how do you look upon issues like coronavirus? Thanks, David. Look, as a science communicator, the thing that we try to do with any uh, topic that is of interest to the public, whether that's a medical topic or something else that's particularly in the news, is to bring it back to the evidence and and the basics. And that's one of the things that I think um, is so important with a topic like coronavirus, because as people get out there and spread uh, sometimes misinformation, people get really scared. So one of the things I've spent a lot of time on ABC doing is being a medical science mythbuster. And what we do with that is actually taking the the papers and the the evidence and evidence from government departments and the actual the the actual evidence <laughs> and then trying to craft that in a way that general public can understand. And so with something like coronavirus, I think at this stage the uh, Australian landscape, we've done a really good job of trying to uh, inform people but keep them relatively calm. But what you see around the world is a lot of people in major panic. Um, some of the messaging that seems to be spreading out there can really uh, you know, elicit huge panic and probably misinformation. As you were saying, you went to a hairdresser this morning and they were telling you a great story about how this all began. Um, and this is the, the concern that when um, people are left to communicate science um, amongst their own little echo groups and yeah. their interest groups, that some very fanciful stories get out. And we've seen this have long-term health effects in other areas. So um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is probably one of the yeah. most historically famous examples of where a, a scientist actually did the wrong thing and misreported um, about that. And that's had an impact 
impact on the area for many, many decades. And so now what we have is still uh, pockets of the community who are really scared of that vaccination that they think it could actually have um, uh, autistic effects on yeah. the child. We know that's not true, uh, but it's really important to have official science communicators who go and read the evidence and communicate that um, in all sorts of forums and um, whether that's in the government, whether that's in uh, academia, uh, in uh, media, in not-for-profits uh, like the Academy of Science, which we were mentioning before, it's absolutely essential we have that evidence base mm. before we start the communication expertise. Sure, but how do you stop the misinformation? How do you challenge the misinformation effectively so as that you can knock it over? Because interesting you bring up, uh, you bring up that vaccination around measles, mumps, uh, rubella, mm. because it's still it still runs to this day that mm. there are, you know, every so often it sort of comes back up and there's another sort of campaign that rolls behind it, uh, yes. misinformed. Yes. I think the best thing you can do is to make sure you supply ample evidence-based information and actually have fresh new campaigns Um Putting the, the correct information out there just once usually isn't enough. It's a matter of putting it out there multiple times, making sure you're getting maximum reach. So um, in that uh, example, it's important that on social media that there are evidence-based groups constantly promoting the, the real uh, results of that and what, mm. what really is the case. But are they resourced for that? And do they have the capability to be able to be a media company on behalf of their credible organisation? Well, some do and some don't. So you're right. So it's very important that we work with media and we work with government agencies to try and um, make sure that everybody is working together. And you do see that. It's actually Australia is a really good example of where you have the experts from a not-for-profit area or an interest group working with, uh, for example, ABC to go in there and, and talk to them about it or um, the Department of Health will actually uh, make sure that there are appropriate campaigns going out that are evidence-based so they're incorporating all of those people. So I guess what I'm saying is that it has to be multiple players but at the end of the day it has to have the evidence base and it needs to be not just a one approach, you know, to, to conquer misinformation. The other thing we see is when somebody is very strongly opposed to a view, um, whether that's evidence-based or not, it's very hard to change their mind. It can yeah. happen, but it, it's probably not going to be, your bit, uh, you know, your best bet. It's more helpful to actually inform the people who are out there going, which, which information should I trust? So if you get enough of the credible organisations, incredible media uh, out there, I think you've got a better chance of actually... Is it, getting, is it getting worse because of the amount that people are consuming content on their phones, the amount of time that's being spent on phones, the hysteria perhaps is, is getting worse? I think it's really easy for uh, people to get very focused on their their echo chamber, on their uh, devices with certain social media platforms. And by that, you'll find members of the community are sharing uh, certain information amongst their group and they're not necessarily looking broadly for that information. You know, when, you, when you're talking to a media outlet, you're usually hoping that there's lots of different... Um, you know, views coming forward, different approaches to it, different evidence presented. But in social media, we're our own curators. So if we don't look broadly, we could be getting um, information that's wrong. The other thing that really concerns me is how regularly um, information can be put out there that looks legitimate. And I've seen excellent examples of this myself where it actually looks like a scientific paper or evidence is provided to an argument. But it's actually, if you read 
closer and you're a science communicator, you can see that the actual paper that they've used to justify that story was not the correct paper or that someone's misinterpreted it. Sometimes somebody just doesn't have the expertise to know that yeah. that paper on the flu doesn't apply to that paper on a different vaccine. Mm. Um, and so that's the sort of Do you see that scenario. fake news a lot in science communication? It, it was one of the reasons why I think science communication has become such an important um, area to specialise in because that was uh, and still is uh, out there quite a lot of misinformation about science via fake news. However, I'm pleased to report that I think a lot of organisations are really working to um, combat that. Now, it doesn't stop it coming out, but it means that there's more chance that you're going to see credible organisations like the CSIRO or the Academy of Science out there saying, well, here's, here's the facts and this is what you can you know, take away from this. Hmm. So more broadly, so we'll leave coronavirus and hopefully it'll get under control and it will be normalised as, as any other sort of virus and hopefully we will all return to normal life and the the uh, the aisles and the shelves of the uh, supermarkets <laughs> will be uh, returned to normal. But let's hope, let's hope, let's hope it, it can uh, be brought under control. But listen, your career in, in science communication, um, we were on a panel um, a few months ago and we had a nice little chat before we got started. And it's quite a, you know, as you, you were a medical research scientist, but you sort of moved elsewhere through science communication now up to a role of, of CEO. So perhaps if you can give us the broad view of science communication and where it is at the moment and the capability and, and how are we how are we going at the moment in terms of communicating effectively in science? Yeah. Well, look, when I uh, set out on the pathway to become a science communicator, at that point, no one really knew what a science yeah. communicator was. Um, I was very lucky to have uh, someone who had spent many years communicating science on a TV show take me under his wing. And when I said, oh, I want to be more involved in communication, I thought lecturing was where I'd be heading. Right. He said, why don't you try actually going out and becoming a science communicator? That could be in the media, that could be at a university. In the end, my first job I did get was at a university specialising in outreach. So both on communicating all the science that we were doing in all different areas, but also running events and actually engaging students with yep. the science. And that's sort of where I have come back to now with the National Youth Science Forum. We don't only communicate the science that's out there, we also provide transformative experiences so the students can come in and have a go at that science that they, they're hearing about and we're communicating. Um, now fast forward to you know 15 years into my career when you say you're a science communicator people don't even blink it's mm. a well recognized well-known profession what I'm excited about is you're seeing it really expand into lots of different areas so you have um, science communicators in most universities and most academic organizations um, some of them are very specialized in their area and some of them are more broad like I I went into all sciences and I found that fascinating because one day I'd be talking about agriculture the next day I'm talking about physics and then of course you know m medical science was my underlying passion so mm. that's really exciting but then you see people uh, in government departments you know the, the policies that we we see passed is so important to have people working with the scientists working out okay how can we best communicate this 
both for our decision makers as well as the public. You know, that's such a crucial role. And, you know, then we see people in um, not-for-profits like ours that are, are part of that presenting the science and engaging future generations in the science. So um, I think there's lots of different opportunities now and I think it's really going in the right direction in that we're working in a beautiful unit with the scientists who have the evidence base and, and making sure that we help them with the communication skills to actually make sure that's getting to the right audiences and then the organisation supporting all of that to make sure that people are finding the right information out at the right time. What are the keys to, to being um, a good science communicator? Uh, so for me, it all comes back to evidence. Um, so you must make sure that you're not going out and talking about an area outside of your field, or if you are, you need to qualify that. Um, I am a science commentator, so I qualify that when I'm on radio and they've asked me to talk about physics or something that I do not have my PhD in. It's fine uh, to do that, but you need to do your homework. You need to have read widely in that area. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you don't feel like you are experienced enough in that area, you really should pass on that opportunity. So that's number one. Um, number two is actually understanding why you're communicating. And this is um, one of the things I think so many people get wrong and where you and I really bonded in that session we're in is audience. Um, so, so many communicators out there have a message to tell, but it, to be a good science communicator, you really have to identify exactly who are you trying to reach, where are they, and depending on where, you, where you're reaching them, how do you have to package your content that's unique Mm. So in terms of the skills around the scientists and, and, and the, the science communication, are the skills the same as any other sort of communication skills that you would, would work with? Um, to an extent, so that, that later bit of the audience and making sure that you're packaging it in the correct way. Um, in my career, I've learnt uh, all of that from the marketing communications world. Yeah. Um, but the, the science speci specialisation bit is where science communicators can offer something very different. Yeah. Because when you're talking to you know, a Nobel Prize winning physicist, for example, or, mm. or somebody who has very deep technical detail, you have to be really careful that that information is being appropriately, uh, first of all, translated yeah. and then communicated. And so that requires lots of stages of fact-checking and yep. making sure that, you know, you're not just going off with this story or we get fact news like we were talking sure. about. But there's also that challenge, isn't there, of when you're working with the scientists who have such deep knowledge and then getting that translation piece, particularly when you're going out to the community where you're taking a piece of highly technical information and trying to put it into a form that you know, the man or woman on the street can say, oh, okay, I understand what that's about. So how how do you develop those skills, that tra those translation skills? Yeah, so look, I, I think it's often a, a multi-step process depending on how um, detailed the information is. But the thing you learn as a um, more experienced science communicator is not to be afraid of um, really distilling that down to a simple message. Yep. The number one thing is to go back to the scientist or go back to an evidence-based body who is a special a speci speciality in that uh, and to make sure that the way you have um, translated that and the way you've simplified that for general messaging that you haven't got anything wrong mm. and um, so for some areas that's very simple and very easy but other areas when you've got many different factors or it could have a really significant impact and result in harm 
to a group of people or a big behavioural change. Um, you know, it, it is very important that science communicators do their due diligence and get that fact-checking uh, done. But the, the thing is they shouldn't just go, oh, I can't, I can't distill it down because, yes. you know, it's complex. That's exactly what we need to do. But it's not um, making it um, dumber in any way. It's actually making it more focused but in a way that people can understand and relate it to their yeah. own life. It sounds time-consuming to be able to assemble yeah. um, that simple story. How do you manage that complexity in a, you know, in a time-poor environment where people are looking to move faster and faster and faster? How do you, how do you yeah. balance the needs? Well, um, especially from my experience in the social media world, that's probably one of the times where it comes in most, uh, you know, importantly is when you're trying to turn around uh, a breaking news story mm. within half an hour or mm. an hour. Um, then it is number of people. So you really have to have a team of yep. people who okay. all have their position to play in that. Yep. So one will be trying to distill it down, the others will be starting to make the the, the parts of the video or, you know, bedding down the communication package. And then you need a group of people totally committed to fact-checking that and fact-checking that fast. So it, it really is a team sport. It's yep. something that everybody has to come together yep. and actually make sure, right, that's a deadline. That's where we're going uh, to. And sometimes there's things that aren't so important, whether, you know, it, it's really making sure that the important things are ticked off and that that bit is accurate. The other thing that's very important to realise with any of this science communication is over time science changes. So something we know today, uh, in a year's time, it can be very different. So it's very important that we all start going back and looking at previous you know, articles and okay. work we've done, if they're still in the public domain, uh, that we're not accidentally misspreading <laughs> like spreading yeah. misinformation because we've uh you know done something years ago and now the science has changed um some areas that moves a lot quicker than others mm. now a couple of case studies I, I was fascinated when we were on that panel that you were talking about the academy uh here in canberra academy of science where you were engaged as the essentially the communications and engagement director of, mm -hmm. of the institute. You came in with a view, came in with a plan. How about you tell us that story about how you went about building the presence of the, uh, the academy? Sure. Well, look, when I joined the Academy, um, one of their biggest aims was to engage the unengaged. So the Academy of Science is a fantastic organisation and they have really the brains trust of Australian science uh, yep. there. But uh, when I came in, we felt like they were talking to them themselves or right. to... The, and they probably were. Yeah, and to very senior policy makers. Right. So when I first come in, you know, we did a few surveys and said to the general public, well, do you know who we are? And really the, the brand recognition was fairly low. So the aim was to make sure that we were engaging the unengaged with science and that we were improving the science literacy. So with all the fantastic work the Academy was doing and still does today, it was about making sure that that got translated to a level that the mums, the dads, the grandparents, everybody can understand and not just in Australia but national, uh, internationally. Now, just to jump in there, a survey you started with. So you started with evidence. How much evidence, how big was that survey, given that the unengaged is a fairly large, I yeah. imagine, a fairly large group? Look, this one was pretty informal focus okay. group sort of survey, a survey and focus group, a combination. So we went out there and we just asked a whole range of different people, um, both in Australia and we had uh, some of our colleagues overseas who asked people. Overseas, we knew that probably it wasn't very well 
recognised necessarily um, amongst the public. It was very well recognised against other leading science organisations. So it wasn't that hard to uh, work it out. The other thing is on our Facebook page, only 9,000 people were following the Academy. So we, we looked at Facebook as where were the... Um, where were the unengaged uh, people? We felt that there were a lot of people on Facebook that were there not for getting their science information. They were there for sharing pictures of sure. their kids and doing other things. So it seemed like a really good platform to try that out and say, okay, how, how will we go here if we have a targeted campaign to engage these people with science information? Mm -hmm. And that's what you did, I imagine. That is what we did and so they're Facebook still doing led, it today. <laughs> Facebook-led? Yes. Okay. Yes. And that was the big insight that came out of that survey was that that's where that was the, the the channel where they were spending most time the unengaged and therefore that's where you're going to put your efforts yeah not just the survey but the social media statistics you okay. know we we could very clearly see where the biggest audiences were and we could also see um, where we had the biggest chance to to make an impact now the academy has gone on to to definitely uh, diversify diversify that strategy but facebook when i was there was the the first step of that mm -hmm. and um and it worked. You know, we went from 9,000 people following the Academy to within a year we were well over the 1 million people following <laughs> and engaging with with those videos, with that content. And they weren't uh, – the views were fantastic, some of the views that we were seeing on some of these topics, um, but also the engagement, so the type of comments that we were seeing. So um, we did a very big uh, vaccination campaign with the Department of Health while I was there, uh -huh. uh, and we saw community change. We saw people commenting on the page saying thank you for explaining the science behind that I feel much more comfortable now with my decision or would go to a meeting and someone would say oh I took my kids to get that that jab because you know yep. I watched the video it helped me understand what it was all about and why it was important and to me that's what I loved as a science communicator was seeing that we could establish this fantastic communication unit but it actually helped people with their literacy around the science their understanding of you know things going on and it meant that Communities that otherwise might have felt like they uh, can't access that science could. I come from a very small country town in South Australia and up until that project, um, not many of them really ever followed science. But I guess because of my connection to that town and also, you know, the, the great content we were putting out, that whole town is still following the Academy and loves what they're doing. And the comments that I've had there about how it's helped them understand environmental issues, how it's helped them understand health issues, and also where to get accurate information. You know, that's that's what we're trying to do when we do something like that, is to actually empower people, not just to believe everything that you hear, but to, well, how do I find out some more information about that and make my own mind up? Okay. Now, it's easy just to probably let that slip, but you said 9,000 to a million. Now, that's just extraordinary. How did you go about deciding what parts of science you would focus on in terms of the editorial and the story? And then how did you, go, how did you decide whether it was a, a post or was an animation or it was an infographic or it was a video? Give us some insights into your into mm. your editorial planning yep. behind you know building this vast audience. 
Well, obviously, we were based within the Australian Academy of Science, so the direction of the fellowship and the direction of the CEO of the Academy was very important. Um, they, they had a number of topics that they were creating 10-year okay. plans on. Right. Um, this is a 10-year plan for science, okay. or they'd have an area that they had got the best scientists in the country to work on. So that, that had some level uh, okay, to so do with Okay, so you're connecting content. back up to the wider... Yes, the policy the, the policy. Of, of the organisation. Yes. So you sort of linked up to the mothership, so to speak, yes. in terms of giving you a yeah. guardrails as to where you could yeah. play and not play. Our, our framing. Yeah. However, we, we also had a lot of scope to explore science for the love of science. So, okay. um, you know, we, we had a fellow who was going over to Africa and taking the most beautiful photos. And so then we get animal behavioural experts to help us build a story behind this beautiful footage that he'd bring back. Okay. And, and so that also humanised scientists. And, and what was his role? He was a scientist taking photos. He was a photos. scientist, yeah. yeah. So his so area was uh, geology. Yeah. Yep. Uh, his area was geology. He, he would go over to Africa and he loves photography. Yeah. Now, what that meant is more people got to know him as a scientist. They got to know what he had done in his actual career and everybody just loved the content that he created. But the big part that we added was what what is beyond just this pretty photo, this piece of video content, uh, this infographic. And it was the people, though, that by, the, by what you say... Excuse me, but what? Yeah, the, what you're saying is it was the people that was behind the it. content that really helped as well, because they started to become known and became personal, and so it was okay. This is this wonderful yeah. person who is out there doing this work, and isn't it great to know that this is what that yeah. image comes to represent? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. So look, and it, so they're it all rock stars there. now, are they? Around <laughs> the Academy of Science. Well, look, they're still doing fantastic work on that. And yeah. um, just the other day, I, I saw a, a video that they had um, they'd created. So they give a lot of young emerging researchers this sort of opportunity at the Academy too. So I would suggest that um, you get the CEO and the Director of Comms there to come in and tell you where they've taken that yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, it. Because it, it really is fantastic, and I, I'm so proud. To sit back and watch, you know, yeah. where they're growing it to yeah. and, and that it keeps on going that direction. But uh, in terms of content and what content, um, you know, really we, we saw video at the time as a key strategy because people have short attention spans on social media. If you haven't grabbed them within a few seconds mm. on something like Facebook, then it's not going to do it. Photos, videos tend to be the quickest and easiest way to reach Stop. mass audiences. Mm. Having said that, it's very important to have um, more grit behind any of that. So um, what I liked about what we were doing there was we'd have, you know, the, the video or the, the photo part of the, the content package, but mm -hmm. we'd also have a, a lovely 500-word article to explain a bit deeper science and connect them through to, well, here's the paper on that if you actually want to okay. go and read the scientific paper. And, and where was that content house? Was that... On the on still in in the um on on the platform, so the fa Facebook platform, or was that back at your website where you were sending people back to your sort of website to if they wanted to know more? Yeah, so the academy has it all on their website, right. um, but it was also if people wanted to find it on Facebook, it was possible, but it was um, the library of all the content 
is certainly through the website. Yeah. And so that that's the other thing. Websites, I think, still play a very important, valuable role for making sure that you've got this great reserve of information and, mm. and the full story. But they're not going to be the place where, um, well, in my opinion, unengaged people are just going to, you know, go on Google, find your website and go in and see that piece no. of content. So to me, it's it's got to be um, putting it out more widely, making it really entertaining and, and almost like credible clickbait. They, they, <laughs> they, want, they want to click on it, but you know that it's going to lead back to a good source. Yeah. So that that's, yeah. Now again, but nine thousand to a million, and you've given us a bit of an idea as the strategic sort of pathway to that. But then, how did you operationalize that? How many people did you have? And I think one of the great insights you've just given us is something that I talk about a lot: is this notion of it's not just the comms team. You know, like mm. if you make the team bigger and you think you look around and look at everybody and think, well, they actually could all potentially be contributors, which is obviously a key part of what you did and probably gave them skills you know, wider than just the central comms team. But there had to be a sort of core team, I'm sure, sitting there. What did that look like? What, what sort of skills and... Yeah, so the, look, the whole uh, comms team at the time I, there, I was there was around 20 people, but it, directly on this project was probably about 16 or 17. Um, so you had video producers, yep. you had uh, writers, uh, you had uh, people who were uh, graphic uh, experts as well. So, uh, and then you had the people that would go off to fact check everything yep. uh, and communicate. Um, mm -hmm. But the the wider team was very important. So um, the impact of the other teams within the academy, so the policy team, the um, sort of guidance from the council of the academy and the fellows themselves. Yep. So they had over 500 fellows who were the most rich source of content. You mm. know, they're, they're still going through all that content. It will be yep. a content... Um, you know, absolute treasure box for years to come. Yeah. But again, I think the key insight there is then connecting everybody up mm. to, to, to the task, but also then celebrating with everybody when the success has come to say, hey, look how this just performed. Here's a case study of XYZ fellow who did X, Y, and Z and look what happened and then mm. build that enthusiasm within the team, which obviously you clearly did. Yeah. And then people joined up to the success. So that knowledge and that success, you've now moved into a new role. Mm -hmm. um, you're the CEO um, of the National Youth Science Forum. How have you taken that learning into the youth forum to help them to achieve their objectives? Sure. Well, look, when you when you work with such a vibrant team uh, as, as I did there, you get a lot of management skills for a team, but also how you work with your broader stakeholders. Um, so at the National Youth Science Forum, our broader stakeholders include Rotary. So we get huge amounts of support from Rotarians all around the country. They're one of the reasons why we can um, find students in small rural country towns yeah, and give well. them the opportunity to come to Canberra or Brisbane and, yep. and experience. Uh, the National Youth Science Forum for two weeks. And so um, I guess that that learning I can apply in a slightly different way in my role as CEO uh, and, you know, again, bring the team together, make sure that the everyone from the board to our stakeholders such as Rotary to um, our partners, which our partners, some of them are financial, but a lot of them are also in kind. So they are the ones who supply us with the science experience or come out and actually speak to the students about mm -hmm. the latest science. Uh, and and um, then the other part of that is thinking about, well, so 
every year we're curating these amazing science experiences. How do we decide on the science that goes into them? What should be the focuses? And again, that comes down to those relationships and understanding, okay, well, so what's this academy doing? What's CSIRO doing? Um, what are some of the other key stakeholders, you know, in Australia? What are their priorities? What's the government's priorities? And what should we be making sure that these students are aware of in terms of future jobs, in terms of the direction that they're, you know, they're taking their, their STEM learnings in? Because some of them, um, you know, don't go on to science, but they go into allied areas such as uh, law or policy. Um, but we see about 90% of these actually go into STEM. Mm-hmm. So that's... So in terms now of your role as CEO, obviously coming out of that communications content role, how, how much of a part of it is your is it now of your day-to-day role? Uh, look, the actual um, the communications as in doing all the um, planning for social mm. and uh, for our other content, I have an awareness of it, but I leave that to the team, to, to team. that are doing yep. it. But obviously you shape it as the CEO of sure. what, you know, what, what your passion is and they know my passion is to engage the engaged, to reach people who may not be able to participate. Okay, in, so it's the same science. mission. You're, you're yep. moving, moving it just <laughs> into another area. And we collaborate with the Academy. The Academy okay, and us great. are close collaborators. So mm-hmm. so to me, it's a, a collaborative approach. I, I think everybody in Australia needs to be working together um, with the government, uh, and we do, to actually make sure that more people have access to, to STEM, that they really understand where they can go with it and what sort of study opportunities are there for them, study and work in the future. So, yeah, yeah so look, it's a it's a different role. Suddenly, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot more than just the comms, mm. but um, for our organisations, comms is very important. Mm. You know, if we don't communicate what we're doing properly, the students don't get the ex- experience that they um, have signed up for, and also they don't necessarily know about the experience. So making sure they know the applications are about to open in March, sure. you know, we need to be good at communicating, you know, in that way as well. So more broadly, and a, a final question, but looking, looking out um, in five years' time and understanding where you've come from through this content communication journey... Where do you see it going? Where do you you see the innovation coming and not only innovation in terms of the way people are receiving and consuming content, but how organisations such as the National Youth Science Forum will produce and distribute information? Mm, mm. Look, I think it's an interesting question and I don't think you can entirely predict this, um, but what I... An area I think is very fascinating is... um, how people talk within their own groups. So we have um, 12,000 alumni at the National Youth Science Forum and I'm very interested in how we can make sure that the comms piece for them, so, you know, the, the closed... Facebook groups, for example, mm-hmm. the um, the sort of events and activities and experiences that we expose those alumni to, how that can support them in their lifelong um, science learning journey. So that that's an area I think we'll see um, communication become more nuanced. At the moment, we've been looking at mass communication and yeah. how do we get as many people to click on this video as we can and how yeah. do we, um, you know, make sure we're... Uh, educating a huge number of people and I don't think that will go away but what I think we will see is more communicators focusing on those very niche areas so how do I look after this 12,000 um, brains trust for NYSF sure. who have come through the program and are now in senior you know government uh, science roles you know professorships around the country mm. how do we make sure that we are you know, 
doing a comms piece for them. Sure. And, and I that think, engagement piece with them is mm. to then engage them but then to activate them and their mm-hmm. their influence that they now have. Exactly. Yeah, and okay. to make sure that then they are, I guess, uh, appropriately, you know, being... Um, you know, given the resources and the things that they need to go out and, and, and do that more broadly, especially with the younger generation, which is what we're interested in. So to make sure that more students in school are actually getting, you know, that hands-on science experience or meeting that scientist that changes their path. But it's also that challenge, isn't it, and the journey, as they call it, to personalisation, that, you know, mm. we're now dealing with an audience of one. You know, yes. people are now thinking, OK, well, how is this relevant to me? Yeah. Which, again, is a challenge because how do we then uh, make the most of the data that mm-hmm. we can to understand the audiences and then how do we make the most of the technology in order to, you know, to achieve that personalisation that will resonate, that will you know, capture people's time and attention? Yeah. It's going to become more complex, isn't it? It's going to become more time-consuming, require different skills than we've had in the past. Yeah, I think so. I think we'll see, and I think we'll always see this ebb and flow of where things widen up because there's a new technology. I mean, social was a really good example Mm. of that when all the social platforms exploded. Mm. We saw comms explode in a very um, wide approach. And then as we get to know more about it and what, as you say, the data behind Mm. what each of those groups are doing on those platforms, then we start to, you know, nuance what we're doing. Mm. And I think, you know, over time, we will see that keep on increasing and contracting. Um, but it's all about who we're trying to reach and what we're trying to help them do. <laughs> A great note to finish on. <laughs> it's all about the audience. So fantastic. Well, thank you. And I look forward to coming you coming back in... Uh a few years' time, and we'll find something else to talk about. I'm Wonderful. sure there'll be lots going on. But um, Dr. Melanie Bag, thank you so much for uh, coming in today. Dr. Melanie Bag, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Youth Science Forum, but also the architect of that wonderful case study there at the Academy of Science, and how I, the thing I love is that you know everybody's on the team. You know, thinking more broadly. You know, scientists who are doing work. Yes, they're communicators as well, and they have many of them have such great skills. Um, to be able to create beautiful uh, imagery and using that to create an audience and an engaged audience and 9,000 to 1 million, 9,000 to 1 million. That's just amazing. So uh, congratulations to, to Dr. Bag and thank you to her for coming in and thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time in a couple of weeks' time, but for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.